Let's hear God's word together this morning. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. 11 verses, one sentence. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's, let's pray together. Ask God to help us understand his word. Father, we come to your word this morning and, and, and the things that we read are incredible and amazing that you are a God who has lavished your grace on us. You are a God who has redeemed us in your one and only son, Jesus. And we pray this morning that you, that you, Holy Spirit, would make Jesus more believable, more beautiful to us, more tangible to us, that you would work in our hearts to see that it is grace that saves us, and it is your grace that grows us to be more and more like our Jesus. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, as many of you know, uh, Carrie and I uh, lived in St. Louis, Missouri for about three and a half years as uh, I attended seminary, and we really enjoyed our time living in St. Louis. And one of the great benefits of living in the city uh, of St. Louis was really the incredible generosity of the Anheuser-Busch family. Um, the Anheuser-Busch family, you know, situated there in, uh, in St. Louis, um, they, they foot, footed the bill for all kinds of arts and science stuff for the city, for the people who lived in the city of St. Louis. So, like, the zoo was free because Anheuser-Busch paid for it. The art museum was free. There were numerous things, and being in seminary and just trying to scrape everything together to make the ends meet and being dirt poor, we, of course, availed ourselves of as much of that as we could in our three and a half years there. And we really enjoyed going to the St. Louis Art Museum. And the St. Louis Art Museum has the second largest rotation of art in the U.S. behind the Smithsonian. Um, and I really loved going to, art, to, to the art museum. I, I think that the arts are, are, are such an incredible example of what it means to bear God's image in his world because God is the true artist. Like the mountains that you see that you love, the ocean, like God made all of that. Like that's a work of art. And I always really appreciated art and I myself am terrible at it. Uh, I, I mean this in all genuineness. Most five-year-olds can draw better than I can. 
And that's true. Like, that's actually legitimately true. I'm not overstating that at all. Um, but one of the pieces that I really enjoyed, I'm going to tell you about a couple of pieces, but one of the pieces that I really enjoyed in the St. Louis Art Museum was a, was a piece by uh, Winslow Homer, who was an artist in the late 1800s, and he, uh, he actually drew a lot with pencil. Uh, and there was, this, there was this one piece that was in the art museum there called The Perils of the Sea, and what it was is it was a pencil drawing of these two women who were clad in overcoats and everything. And they were standing on a dock uh, right next to the sea when a storm was coming through. And what he was able to do with that pencil to capture like glimmers, like you could, like you could actually feel like water was on these women and everything. And he had to get up really close and personal and intimate with it to see how intentional he was with every stroke of that pencil. I just really love that. I thought that was just so, so great that in this little framed picture, the, the, the intentionally personal way in which this artist drew this drawing. Another one of, uh, one of the really neat experiences that, that we had at St. Louis Art Museum is while we were there, Monet's water lilies came through St. Louis. And so we got to see Monet's water lilies. And for those of you that don't know, basically what Monet did is he took a singular image inside of a pond and basically blew it up. You know, most, most art that we see is taking something big and making it small. Well, he went the opposite way with it. So Monet's water lilies are actually on these different panels and it's huge. It's massive. And we were standing there and I was standing about as far as from me to the first row here and I was looking at it and I was looking at it and I was like, I don't get it. I, I, don't, I don't get what the big deal is about this. Well, there was a young woman there who was, she was an artist and she was painting a replica of Monet's water lilies. So I decided to walk over to her and ask her, hey, I know that this is supposed to be awesome, but I don't see it. Can you, can you help me? And she got up out of her seat and she said, walk back here with me. And the water lilies were, were, were in a room that was about this size. And then there was a big archway and there was another room on the other side that was about the same size. Well, she took me all the way back to the other side of that room. And she looked at me and she said, look at it now. And it was like, oh, wow. Amazing. I, I, I had to get away from it to see the vastness of what was going on there, to get the big picture perspective of what Monet was doing in his water lilies. What we have here this morning in Ephesians 1 is Paul actually takes both of those ideas and marries it together in one sentence. Now, I know in your Bible, it's 3 through 10 is a sentence and then 11 through 14 is a sentence, but actually in the original, it is one long sentence. And what Paul does is he shows us God's plan. In these 11 verses, he shows us God's plan and he shows us that God's plan is intentionally personal and that it's fully flourishing. So that's our big point this morning, God's plan. God's plan is intentionally personal and it's fully flourishing. So let's uh, dig into the intentionally personal part. Verse 4, Paul tells us that we are blessed in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing and that that means that we are a people who are chosen in Christ. This choosing is an intentional choosing. We are chosen in Christ actually before the foundations of the world. 
So Paul is telling us something there. One of the things that he is telling us is like, it's not like God looked at you and looked at me and said, you know, they'll be pretty good for my kingdom, so I'm going to pick them. No, God shows us before the foundations of the world in Christ. What Paul is communicating to us is that our relationship with God does not start with us. It starts with him. And God chooses us. And that means that God sets his love on us in Christ. Paul is telling us something about our reality, that we are made by God and that he chooses us, that he sets his love on us in Christ. And this should be profoundly comforting to us. It should be a very comforting thing to us because I don't know about you, but my experience of choosing in this life is not all that comforting. As I think back on my experience of choosing this life, it leads back to being on the playground and getting picked last for kickball. You know, or maybe there are many of you in here who've been passed over for a promotion before. Maybe there are some of you in here that you applied to a particular school and you wanted to get into that school and you didn't get into that school. And so often for us, choosing is actually ends up being rooted in rejection and the feelings that we have of, of being rejected. But God's choosing is different. It's different than ours. God chooses us and sets his love upon us. He looks at us and like Dave said a few weeks ago, he says, I love you because... I love you. I've set my love upon you in Jesus. It should be a profoundly comforting thing for us to know that. That God, in his plan, is intentionally personal in that way. Another thing that we see about God's plan being intentionally personal, you can see it in verse 7 and in verse 4, and these kind of fit together. In verse 7, the Apostle Paul tells us that we are a people whose trespasses have been forgiven through the blood of Jesus. That we are forgiven. And in verse 4, Paul is telling us that, that for, what that forgiveness means through the blood of Jesus is that we are people who are holy and blameless as well too. That we are forgiven people through the blood of Jesus who are holy and blameless. And that tells us something about ourselves as well too. It tells us that we have to be forgiven. We have to be made holy. We have to be made blameless, which means that we're actually blameworthy. That we're actually worthy of blame. They actually need to be forgiven. It's communicating to us that we're actually guilty of something. What's that thing that we are guilty of. We are guilty of not choosing God. And Paul shoots us all the way back to creation and rebellion there in the garden with Adam and Eve, where at the core of everything and the beginning of everything, that God made everything and he made it good, and he was in relationship with Adam and Eve, and he had given them instructions to be his image bearers in the world that he had made. And ultimately, Adam and Eve decided that what they were going to do was choose self and not choose God. And what the Bible calls that is sin. That's sin. That's, like, that's what we're guilty of. We're guilty of choosing self, not choosing God. One pastor um, says about sin and about this passage, 
is that what sin does is sin shrinks our imagination. I love that picture, that word picture. It shrinks our imagination. You see, what sin does is sin only gives us a lens on life revolving around self. That's what sin does. It turns us in on ourselves. And what Paul is telling us that God does in Jesus through his blood, as he redeems us, he forgives us, makes us holy, makes us blameless. What Paul is telling us is that God actually opens our hearts and opens our minds to the reality that we have rejected him, but that he has chosen us in Christ. And we are a forgiven people. We are a people who are identified by what Jesus has done for us. Paul's telling us is we have to have something from outside of us to get into us, to change us, to save us. And that's exactly what God does in Jesus to us and for us. It's amazing. It's intentionally personal. And Paul goes on to tell us how this plan of God is intentionally personal. In verse 5, Paul says, You are a people who are predestined for adoption as sons in Christ. I want us to take that in for a moment. Because what I want to tell you is that that sentence, that language, this whole passage actually is incredibly relational. Do you realize what God is telling us when he tells us that we are a people who are predestined for adoption? He is looking at you and me and he's saying, your life and my life is not random. It's not random. Your life matters. My life matters. God sees us and he looks upon us and he says, that that which I have made is of infinite worth. I've set my love upon that. So when he says that we are predestined for adoption, he's telling us that we have a destination. That we as God's people, we have a destination. And our destination is adoption as sons. That we belong in the family. Paul is telling us that our lives are set by God's boundaries. That God's the one who defines our lives. And God says, you are destined to be a part of my family. To be adopted in my family. It's amazing. It's incredible stuff. Just think for a moment about your, about your own family. If you're here and you're a parent, think about this. How you look at your children When you look at your children and you just love them because you love them. You like God looks at you and me that way in Jesus? He loves us because he loves us. You know how you think about how your children have their own unique personalities. And and their own things that you're like, oh man, that's glorious. You realize that God looks at you and me that way? That he looks at us and he's like, oh man, that one's mine. That one belongs to me because of what Christ has done. That's incredible. God's plan is intentionally personal for us. Now, I also know that there are many of us in here who have not exactly had a really great and loving experience inside the home. And maybe your parents weren't very, very loving toward you. I recognize that that is a possibility and a reality 
uh, for, for some of us, maybe even for many of us. And I also recognize, too, that honestly, as a parent, I'm guilty of not always loving my children the way that I should. And if you're here and your parents didn't love you the way that you should be loved, you need to know, and I need to know, and we need to know that we have a heavenly Father who looks upon us and he delights in us. As we say each week in our benediction that his smile is upon us because of Christ and what he has done for us, to us, and in us. And for those of us here who screw up as parents, which if you're a parent, it's every single one of us, it's always an opportunity for us to show our kids that they have a heavenly father who does not ever love them poorly even though we might. And it's also an opportunity for them to say, we need the same thing that you need to. We need forgiveness. We too are broken. We too have chosen self instead of choosing God. And Paul wraps all of this stuff up, this intentionally personal stuff up in verse 7. And he says that all of this stuff, what it is, is it is redemption in Jesus. Being chosen, holy, blameless, forgiven, predestined for adoption. This is redemption in Jesus. He has given himself for you and for me. And he has purchased that for us, that we would be in God's family. I remember the first time that I read this passage and it really began to sink in to, to me. What, what it, all the things that Paul is saying here. Um, I was in college, I was about 20 years old, and I read this passage, and, and the this, this Spirit worked in, in such a way for me to see what it was that was being said here, and I couldn't help but just come to tears, because I had spent my entire Christian life thinking that God was just always disappointed in me, because I could never live up to the way that He wanted me to live up to. And what Paul is telling us in this passage is, you know what, that's true. But you need to know that you have a God who loves you so much that he did it for you. Yep, you couldn't, I couldn't. We are guilty, we can't live up, we do choose self. But God always chooses us. Jesus chose us. Jesus chose you and me and he laid down his life for us. That is incredible. God refuses to let us think that our relationship with him starts right here. He's the one. He's the one who does that. And in verse 7, Paul gives us the, the sort of acting agent, if you will, that brings all of this about. And this was the thing that just like washed over me as I read it as a 20-year-old. Is that, is that how does this happen? Grace. Grace. Verse 6 and verse 7, Paul hammers in on the reality that the redemption that we have in Jesus is applied to us by God's grace. And he even says that that grace is something, it's according to God's grace. And that language there of according, we could actually look at that language and, and, and actually translate it covered. Like that we are covered by this grace of God. Uh, to dig in deeper on that, it's like this. We are soaked to the bone by grace in Jesus. Think about that. Like we are, we are waterlogged 
with grace. We are a people who are absolutely drenched by God's grace. And it makes us a people who are holy and blameless and forgiven and chosen and adopted and in the family of God. But it's not only that. God actually lavishes this grace on us as well too. So this grace, not only are we soaked in it, but it actually comes out from us as well. Like it flows off of us toward one another. You see, because God's plan is intentionally personal and that has an individual application to us as we think about God saving us, but it also has a collective application too. Because this grace not only soaks us, but it goes out from us to one another. Into the family of God that we are called into. Into the church. And so we get this incredible opportunity in our lives to live life alongside of one another. And to remind each other of all of these truths that Paul says here about who we are in Jesus. That when we're having a terrible day and we're really down on ourselves and we're thinking to ourselves, and this happens to me all the time, man, I'm just a disappointment. To remind each other and come alongside one another and be like, hey, do you know what God says about you in Jesus? That he delights in you. He looks at you as his son. And yes, that means that we absolutely bring our sin to the table. Because Jesus has given his life for us and we are now defined by him. This grace, is, it, it soaks us and it moves out from us toward one another as we get to live life alongside of one another. And then Paul tells us that grace is this, is this linchpin in the plan as well too because not only is God's plan I- I- intentionally personal, but grace also shows us that God's plan is fully flourishing too. Verses 9 and 10, Paul gets at this. And then actually verses 11 through 14 are just an exposition of verses 9 through 10 of what that looks like. In verses 9 and 10, Paul tells us that that God's grace shows us God's plan that is a fully flourishing plan. That it's a fully flourishing plan. And that plan is that in Jesus, God is reuniting heaven and earth. And Paul says it is, it, it, that, it, that the mystery of God's will has been revealed to us. And that idea of mystery there is plan. That God's plan has been revealed to us. And that that plan is, is that Jesus is uniting heaven and earth. In the fullness of God's timing, Jesus is doing that. And that language there for uniting, actually if we were to look at the original language, a more appropriate translation there is reuniting. Do you know what Paul's doing here? Do we see what Paul's doing here? He is actually casting us back toward the big picture perspective. The Monet here of the story of Scripture. Paul's telling us there was once a time when heaven and earth were united. Creation. And then in rebellion, heaven and earth were ripped apart. But in redemption, in Jesus, through his blood, we are being put back together with God 
through Jesus' blood. We are being reunited as his people. And not only that, restoration is real because all of heaven and earth is being reunited in Jesus. Paul wants us to be overwhelmed by what he is saying here. He wants us to read this, and he wanted the church at Ephesus to read this, and to be like, it feels like we have just gone off of a waterfall and there is no end in sight. And God's grace just keeps coming and coming and coming and coming until Jesus reunites everything. One pastor says about God's grace is that, is that, is that when we talk about God's grace, that hyperbole is an understatement. You get that? Like, we cannot overstate how big and vast and great God's grace is is. And it's that grace that saves us, and it's that grace that gives us a vision for what it is that God is doing in reuniting all things, reuniting our hearts to God's, bringing us in his family together, but reuniting heaven and earth, that Jesus will bring heaven down to earth. And God's grace also grows us to show us that we are actually to take part in that fully flourishing thing that God is doing in his plan. That we actually take a role in that. That we actually participate together in the flourishing that God is bringing in Jesus. I want us to see that in just a couple of ways here this morning. One is this, is that we have the opportunity around every turn to push back on the effects of sin and rebellion. One way that we take part in this fully flourishing thing that God is doing in his plan is we push back on the effects of sin and rebellion. Let me try and apply this a little bit. If you're here, you're involved in the medical community. Every single time that you're seeing a patient and you're trying to help heal their body or you're trying to help prescribe the kinds of medicines that will help heal their body, when you're trying to help them get healthier, when you're, when you're walking through them, when they get a, with them, when they get a cancer diagnosis, you are pushing back on the effects of sin and rebellion in this world. We are taking part in flourishing. If you're here and you're, and you're, you're an educator, you're part, of, you're part of the education process, Every time that you are telling young people that we need to people, be a people who are learning and growing and we need to be teachable and we need to see that we, that we are a bigger, that, that we are a part of a bigger history and that life is not just about ourselves, but outside of ourselves, we are pushing back on the effects of sin and rebellion and we are promoting flourishing when we do that. If you're involved in the legal system, you have an opportunity every single day to push back on the effects of sin and rebellion in the world. Like you have an opportunity to be a person of justice, to be a person who seeks to do that which is right, but also seeks to give that which is due because all of humanity bears God's image in his world. And we can apply this to so many other vocations as well too. But let's bring it into the home too. Mom and dad, 
We have an opportunity to push back on the effects of sin and rebellion in the world every single time that we help our children see their sin. And also, every single time that we show our children our own sin, too. And we communicate to them that we need the same thing that they do. That is an opportunity every single time to push back on the effects of sin and rebellion, to own our sin, to help our children own their sin, to point each other to Jesus and what he has done in giving himself for you and for me. And so as parents, we need to be a people. As parents, we need to own when we sin against our kids. We need to model repentance and our own need for the gospel. It helps shape our kids. We need to teach them that they're a part of a bigger story. We need to teach them that our family is a Christian family, and that means that we're not mean to each other, and we don't speak with contempt towards one another, but we strive to be kind and generous and gentle. And you know what ends up happening? That ends up carrying its way out into the world. And I don't know about you, but I think we could use a little bit more gentleness. We could use a little bit less contempt. And we get the opportunity to be a people like that. We get the opportunity to push back on the effects of sin and rebellion in the world. Let's think about it from this standpoint too. How about being a people who want to promote life? who want to promote life. That means that every time that you volunteer at the Crisis Pregnancy Center and you go and you sit down with that young mother-to-be who is so desperate, she doesn't know where else to turn and everywhere she feels like she turns, she just gets the eye of judgment. You get the opportunity to sit in that seat with her and to remind her that she is someone who bears God's image in his world. And not only that, but the baby that she carries is someone who bears God's image in his world too. We get the opportunity to promote life, to push back on the effects of sin and rebellion. And you can carry that over. We get the opportunity to promote life when we engage and enter into conversations with people who haven't had experiences like us and who have had hard experiences, difficult experiences, at times experiences of incredible injustice. And we hear their stories and we say, you are someone who bears God's image in his world and you matter. You matter. You're unique. You have worth. Because you're an image bearer of God. All the way to the deathbed. When we get the opportunity to sit on the side of that deathbed with loved ones. And to speak maybe the words of Ephesians 1. And to sing hymns. And to be with people as they are crossing over to go meet Jesus. That is an opportunity to partake, to participate in the fully flourishing and pushing back on the effects of sin and rebellion in the world that we live in. And another way that we get to do this, another way that we get to participate in this fully flourishing, is the power of forgiveness. Because here's what's true. Every single one of us has wronged somebody. And every single one of us has wronged God. And what's also true is every single one of us has been wronged by another as well too. 
and what taking part in the fully flourishing plan that God is doing in the power of forgiveness is seeing that in Jesus, we are not defined by the wrongdoing that we have done, and we're not defined by the wrongdoing that's been done to us either. And the power of forgiveness in God's grace is real. It means that our lives don't have to be defined by the harm that's been done to us. It means our lives also don't have to be defined by the harm that we've done to others, which means that we are free to own our sin. We are free to lean in and say, I messed up there, and to stand in the confidence of what Jesus has done and not what I've brought to the table, because what I've brought to the table is hurt and pain. And we have confidence in the gospel when others have wronged us and done wrong to us because we know we're not defined by that either. But we are defined by Jesus who loved us and who gave himself for us and in whom it is finished. That is absolutely true. We get to participate in the fully flourishing plan that God has as we push back on the effects of sin and rebellion as we live out the power of forgiveness in our own lives and into the world around us. Because what we are doing is we are proclaiming this reality that our Christ is coming again. That Jesus is coming back. That he is going to reunite heaven and earth. He is going to bring heaven to earth. And that all of the wrongdoing and the bad that we have done will ultimately be redeemed and all of the wrongdoing that has been done to us will ultimately be redeemed and Jesus will be all in all. He will wipe every tear away from our eye and we will see that sin is no more and we will get the opportunity to live forever in glory, just as Paul says in 11 through 14, with our Jesus. Beloved, God's plan is intentionally personal. And it is fully flourishing. And it's that plan that brings us right here to the table. To this meal. Because we see in this meal God's plan. That it is intentionally personal. That it is true that we are blameworthy. We are guilty. We have chosen self over God so many times, but God has looked upon us and he set his love upon us in Christ. And Jesus became our sin that we might be made right with God and forgiven and justified. And we're also reminded at this table, grace saves, grace also grows. That God is not yet done with us and that we are growing in grace, that we are growing in grace to take part in the fully flourishing plan that God has for his people. And so we get to come together and we proclaim and we celebrate what our Christ has done and is doing. And if you're here this morning and you belong to the Lord Jesus, then this table is for you. You need it. Come partake. But if you're here this morning and you wouldn't say that you belong to Jesus, we wouldn't want you to come and partake of something that's not true of what you actually believe. And so we would ask that you let these elements pass you by. There's nothing magical about the bread and the cup. And instead of receiving the bread and the cup, we would encourage you this morning to receive the Lord Jesus.
to receive what God says about who we are in Ephesians 1 and to place your faith and your hope and your life in the hands of Christ. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this meal that you've placed before us, the gospel to our senses, to all of our senses, to taste and to touch, to smell and to take in, that we need something from outside of us to come into us and to change us. And so we pray this morning that, that you, Holy Spirit, would make Jesus wonderful and savory to us and that you would continue to grow us in your grace to be more and more like our Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.